I don't want believers in the church today to operate under this heavy uh, cloud of some sort of legal obligation that they have to measure up to some specific percentage in order to be pleasing to God and to be living a godly life. Paul says later in 2 Corinthians 9, uh, let each person uh, make up his own mind. In other words, you need to give as you have decided in your heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Sam Storms. Sam serves as senior pastor at Bridgeway Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and is the founder of Enjoying God Ministries. He's also the author of Tough Topics, Biblical Answers to 25 Challenging Questions with Crossway. Today, Sam and I discuss what the Bible teaches about tithing, We explore the words Old Testament background and whether or not Christians are obligated to give 10% of their income today. He also offers advice related to living generously, speaks to the sensitive issue of pastors' salaries, and reflects on how giving to support missions, the poor, and other charities fits into this conversation. Let's get started. Sam Storms, thank you so much for joining me on the Crossway Podcast today. It's good to be with you, Matt. So we're going to talk about tithing today, the idea of giving to our churches. Uh, but before we kind of jump in, could you just help us understand that word, tithe? It's kind of a, it's an odd word. I don't think we hear it much outside of that kind of church context. Uh, where does the word actually come from, and what does it mean? Well, it's first used in the Old Testament. Uh, it's Hebrew. The Hebrew equivalent is a tenth. And it's found in numerous passages that talk about uh, Israel's obligation uh, to support um, the work of the Levites primarily, but also uh, to, uh, to supply other needs. And we can get into that in just a minute. Uh, it doesn't appear in the New Testament except in three places. There are two texts in the Gospels where it's referenced, and then one in Hebrews chapter 7. But aside from that, uh, it's not found in the New Testament. But I think most Christians know what it means when they hear the word tithe. Some of them will immediately think it's just synonymous with give. Uh, Others will know that uh, it's not just giving, but how much giving, namely 10% of one's income. Hmm. So when you hear someone ask kind of the common question, are Christians obligated to tithe? Is that something that Christians are called to do? Uh, How would you answer that question? Um, let me, before I give an, a, an explicit answer to that, let me just say one thing up front. What we're talking about here is not whether or not Christians who live under the new covenant are responsible to give generously, joyfully, and sacrificially to the work of the ministry and the local church, for example, or to world missions. We know that we are. Uh, it's very clear in the New Testament um, that we are to give uh, with a joyful, cheerful heart. Um, the question, though, is the, in the way that you phrased it is, does the New Testament specify a, a particular percentage of our income? Uh, so when Christians, somebody says, Sam, are we obligated to tithe? I immediately respond. I said, well, you are certainly responsible and you are commanded in Scripture to give generously and joyfully, but I don't believe that you are uh, given a specific percentage in the New Testament uh, to which you are obligated. So, yes, we are responsible, and I can even say obligated because it is a command. We're obligated to give generously and joyfully, 
but there's no specified percentage that I that is found in the New Testament. Yeah, and I wonder if you could speak uh, a little bit to that. You know, if if you're arguing that the the technical you know requirement of ten percent rooted in the Old Testament and the history of Israel isn't isn't binding on Christians today. How do we understand then how much we should be giving? What, what's the benchmark? I think sometimes we, we almost want a little bit more clarity and uh, specificity sometimes on uh, so that we can know whether or not we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. What, what would you say to that? Well, l- let's start out by just mentioning what the tithe was in the Old Testament. There are two references to tithing prior to the Mosaic Covenant. So there's one in Genesis 14 where Abraham gave a tenth of everything to Melchizedek. And then there's another passage in Genesis chapter 28 where Jacob promised to give a tithe of all he had to God. And some people will say, well, doesn't that establish a rule or a, a standard for us in the New Covenant? Why, granted, it's before the Mosaic Covenant was instituted. We know we're not under the law of, the, of Moses. So why can't we appeal to Abraham and Jacob? Well, the problem with that is, first of all, we don't know whether Abraham tithed to Melchizedek because of some command that he received from God or whether it was uh, just a common ancient Near Eastern custom. And then when you have the situation with Jacob, it was it's very interesting when you read the broader context, Jacob is promising or vowing to tithe to God on the condition that God would bless him, that he would provide food and clothing for him, for example. So I don't think we can look to Abraham and Jacob as normative for us. Now, if we had no New Testament teaching on giving, then we might want to look back to those two uh, patriarchs, but we do have New Testament um, uh, standards for giving. Then, of course, let me just say a brief word about tithing under the Old Covenant or under the Mosaic Covenant. Um, Many scholars, and I happen to agree with them, believe that Israel paid nearly 22% of their income to the Lord every year, not just 10%. Um, Now, when we come to the New Testament, we have to remember, first of all, we are not bound by the old covenant. We're not under the law of Moses. We don't bring a lamb to sacrifice. You know, we don't have to observe the civil code of Leviticus. We're, you know, we're, it's okay to touch a dead body, for example. Uh, We aren't immediately ceremonially unclean. And therefore, the law concerning tithing, uh, I do not believe, is binding on Christians under the new covenant. Now, all that to say, that's kind of a preface to getting back to your question was, you know, what is the standard for believers? What are, what are we uh, required or responsible to do in the, in, the, in the church age in which we live? First of all, I'd say this. If a Christian wants to tithe, in other words, if they want to give 10%, they are totally and completely free to do so. In fact, um, when I have uh, people who perhaps haven't given before, maybe they're new believers, and they say, hey, what's a benchmark? What's a, where can I start out? And I say, hey, why not start out with a tenth? Uh, we know it does have biblical precedent. That doesn't mean that you're required to give that much. You may want to give 8%. You, want, you may want to give 20%, depending on how God has prospered you. But I think certainly the Christian is free to tithe. I just don't think we are free to impose that 10% as a rule on all other Christians, as if anything less or anything more would somehow be unbiblical. So again, are we morally obligated under the terms of the new covenant uh, to give at least 10%? The answer to that is no. 
are we morally and spiritually free to do so? And the answer to that is undeniably yes. So all that is kind of a prelude to kind of answering the question, what is a New Covenant Christian supposed to do? Yeah, yeah. I'm curious then, you know, we've, we've kind of, maybe for a lot of people, kind of uh, deconstructed an assumption that, hey, the Bible just kind of, in a more general sense for all people, mandates a 10% gift. And it's sort of like, well, I checked that box, so I, I guess I'm good. Um, but yeah, what would you say if you had to summarize the New Testament's teaching on the idea of giving and generosity, what would that be? Sure. That's a great question. And most often, uh, we typically turn to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Um, now, we have to admit up front, and this is important for people to remember, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 uh, is, is not necessarily designed by Paul, who wrote it, to provide you know standards or principles or guidelines for how we are to give uh, in every situation. It's an appeal. So Paul writes these two chapters to encourage them, to motivate them, to stimulate them, if you will, uh, to, to be true to their original promise and commitment and follow through and be generous in their giving. Now, in that context, understanding that as the background, there are numerous principles that we find there. Um, so, for example, I was looking at this, uh, you know, everybody knows 2 Corinthians 8 9, or if they don't, they should, where Paul said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And Paul cites that, that, that famous statement uh, primarily in the context of motivating Christians to be generous. And he's basically saying, look, your giving has to be rooted in the gospel. Your, uh, your giving has to flow out of a heart that has been gripped with the reality of the sacrifice that Jesus made on your behalf. He was infinitely wealthy in glory, honor, praise, and power, and then became human, um, entered into this state of humiliation. Basically, I think that's what he means when he says he became poor. And he lived basically a, a very minimal lifestyle on earth. All of this so that you might ultimately and eventually share in the spiritual wealth uh, that he has provided. So first off, all of our giving has to be rooted in the gospel. And then um, in the, I'm just thinking here, in, in the next couple of verses, he says, okay, now finish doing it as well. In other words, bring to consummation this promise you made. He says, completing it out of what you have. And then in the very next verse, I'm in verse 12 of 2 Corinthians 8. He says, for if the readiness is there, in other words, if you're willing, ready, you're, you're joyful, you're hungry to give, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So his point is you give in accordance with or in proportion to the way in which God has blessed you. So I, I know people um, who God has blessed immensely in terms of their business, their financial success, and uh, 10% may be woefully inadequate for them. Uh, it may be, you know, I've heard of people doing what they call a reverse tithe, where they give 90% and they live on 10%. Um, on the other hand, um, we've got some people in our church, for example, who are really struggling financially, and it's not because they're irresponsible or lazy. They've just had setbacks financially. They haven't been able to generate much savings or income. And they asked me, they said, should I still give 10%? 
And my response is, well, look at what you have and in proportion to that, make your decision. And so it may be 5%, it may be 8% for them. So I I guess my point is, I I don't want believers in the church today to operate under this heavy uh, cloud of some sort of legal obligation that they have to measure up to some specific percentage in order to be pleasing to God and to be living a godly life. Um, you know, Paul says later in 2 Corinthians 9, uh, let each person uh, make up his own mind. In other words, you need to you need to uh, give as you have decided in your heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so I think we prayerfully come to the Lord. We say, God, I want to take into consideration how you've blessed me, you've prospered me, and I want to be as generous as as I possibly can. You know, I don't want to look at this and say, all right, how how little can I get away with giving and still be pleasing to you? That's not the mentality God wants us to have. It's rather how generous I can be, how joyful I can be, how sacrificial I can be to help others in need and also to prosper uh, the work of the kingdom of God. So again, if, if people, um, again, we, we just tend to get hung up on percentage and that's, that's the, the thing that bothers me so much. So I'll just give you a, a principle that governs uh, my life and that of my wife. We've kind of agreed that we want to give out of what we call the first fruits of our wealth. And what I'm saying by that is um, every payday, we the first check we write is to the church or to whatever mission uh, or missionary or mission agency we're supporting. So we, we make up our minds at the beginning uh, to give generously and sacrificially. And then whatever is left over, that's what we live on. And it, it may require that we make some adjustments in our standard of living. It may mean that uh, we go without some of the luxuries that we otherwise thought we needed to have. But we want to give. We don't want to give God out of the leftovers, if I can use that imagery. And and I I find so many Christians, their attitude is, "Wow, I just got a substantial raise. Uh, I just got this bonus. I just got this windfall. So I'm going to go spend it on everything that I've that I've wanted." And oh well. You know, if there's a few dollars left over, I'll I'll give that to the Lord. I'll designate that for the church or some missionary. Um, Again, I can't can't give this as a law um, to to other Christians. I don't have a a verse that says that you're to do it in the way that Sam just outlined. But I would just simply say it as a principle. Think about that. Isn't God deserving of the most and the very best? up front of what we have. And then we learn to adjust our standard of living with what he has given us. So that's just a principle that I I abide by. Now, all that being said, we pretty much give right around 10%. So, you know, when it all, when it all works out, that tends to be um, the percentage uh, that we land on. Uh, but again, as somebody else has said, that's not original with me. That probably ought to be the floor, not the ceiling of our giving. In other words, I think it's a good place to start, but it's not necessarily the place we want to end. Yeah, you mentioned kind of the the value of seeking counsel from other Christians. And obviously, money is kind of one of those taboo topics that is tends to be very hard for us to consider talking about. It's very hard to think about 
you know, sitting down with another Christian, someone who's not part of our family, and, and talking about our finances in any in any depth. Ha- have you ever, you and your wife, ever done that? Kind of gotten someone else's outside input on your finances generally, and then maybe on your your giving specifically. And what has that been like? How helpful was that? And do you think that's something that other Christians should pursue on a regular basis? Uh, yes. We, over the years, and I can't, I'd have to go back into my memory and try to identify the individuals, but uh, yes, we have definitely had uh, people speak into our lives. We have, and again, you're right. It's, it's, it feels like it's a, um, an area where you don't pry into and so most people will not volunteer counsel. You have to go and solicit it. You have to go ask them. You have to say, hey, look, we're young. We're just getting started in life. Um, we're trying to figure out how best to manage the wealth God has given us. Tell us what you all have done. Tell us what you have seen God do as a result of your decisions. What would you? What advice would you give us? Um, I think that's always an appropriate um, uh, approach to take. And I will say this, you, you said it when you prefaced your question, um, there are certain areas that feel off limits to Christians, and it's generally three areas. It's how we're raising our children, um, sexual relationship and marriage, and what we're doing with our money. And it's just like you don't, you know, people just tend to bristle when you approach them. You know, it's it's one thing, for example, let's just, here's a hypothetical, if Matt, if I heard you in casual conversation um, using profanity, which obviously you wouldn't, but if I did, um, I wouldn't really have any hesitation saying, hey, Matt, let's go have coffee. And I sat down and said, you know, you really need to think about the language you use because it's really not a good testimony to Christ. That's easy to do and, and in a lot of other areas. But for me to take you to coffee and say, hey, buddy, tell me how much you're giving to the church and what percentage are you setting aside out of your income uh, to support the work of the Lord? That, that feels profoundly invasive. As you talk about an invasion of privacy. People will really bristle in response to that. Um, so I think what Christians need to do is they need to take the initiative themselves. They need to seek out wise, mature, seasoned believers and, 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 take them to coffee, have them over for dinner and say, tell us what you all have experienced. Tell us what you've learned. Help us understand what might be some guidelines um, to help us in making decisions now and for the future and how we use our money. Yeah. Why do you think it is that money in particular is such a taboo topic for even Christians? I mean, when we look at the New Testament specifically, it seems pretty clear that money is a focus. That's, that's Jesus teaches a lot about our money, and Paul talks a lot about money and supporting people and being generous. So why why is it that we've gotten to this place where it feels like we don't we don't view it as something that we can really talk about or challenge each other on? Boy, that is that's a very good question. There are several ways I could answer it, but let me just mention one in particular. As you know, we live in a day, a time in which there have been um, an ever-increasing number of financial scandals in the church, uh, in which we find um, ministry leaders or pastors who are making exorbitant amounts in terms of salary. Um, They have finagled uh, somehow the church budget so that 
they are blessed beyond, uh, not just beyond what they need, but even beyond anything that is reasonable. And so when these things come to light, in fact, we've seen this just within the last oh, six to eight months here in the U.S., some very prominent uh, pastors and leaders and their salaries are revealed and um, you know, how many, uh, the, the, you know, living in uh, seven, 8,000 square foot homes with uh, half a dozen cars and uh, their expense budget is just larger than most pastors' salaries. And that has created such a, an opposition in the hearts of many people. They say, well, all you Christians are, are, are about is getting more money. You pastors are, are in the ministry for the, for the monetary gain. Um, and that, I think, has created uh, a hesitancy on the part of others to even say anything about it at all. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. I'm probably, uh, I, I don't think I overreacted to this, but when I first came to Bridgeway, like most churches, we passed the plate on Sunday mornings. We had a time of, of offering. And I felt increasingly uncomfortable doing that and making it such a prominent focus because I thought, what are, the, what are visitors thinking? What message am I sending to them? Uh, what about non-Christians who, by God's grace, have been drawn to our service and seeking out information about the Christian faith? Are they going to think that we're asking them for their money? And are we just like all those um, fanatics that they see on TV who are constantly uh, taking up offerings and belittling and, and manipulating people to give more? So we stopped passing the plate, and then we have offering boxes at the back of the auditorium, and we announced them that they were there once, and we haven't said anything about it since. And people, when we first did this, they said, Sam, you're, you're giving it to your church. It's going to go way down. If you don't pass the plate and put it in front of people's noses, they're going to stop giving. Well, the amazing thing is giving went up. And so we encourage people to give as an act of worship. Go as a family and pray over your, your offering. But we just wanted to avoid sending the wrong message to seekers and to non-believers. And so um, was that decision driven by the bad image that has been projected by some Christian leaders and some churches? The answer to that is yes. I have to be honest and say it is. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with passing the plate. I don't want anybody listening to this to think that your church is in sin for doing that. I'm not suggesting that at all. But you ask the question, why is it that we're so uh, reticent to talk about money? And I think a lot of it is because of the public scandals. Um, I think watching certain individuals who are in ministry uh, getting rich off of it, uh, that I think has more to do with this this uh, mentality that now exists than anything else. So the result is money is either an enemy that you don't talk about or you fight, or it's become an entitlement and you think you're deserving of more. And I think we need to find some way of um, avoiding those two extremes. Hmm. Yeah. When bringing up pastors and these kind of prominent public examples of money becoming this idol for a pastor or a church leader, it makes me think of first Peter five, where Peter exhorts, he warns elders uh, about shepherding the flock for shameful gain. And so I wonder, as you think about your own personal life and ministry as a pastor for many, many years now, uh, what have been some of the things that you've done to protect yourself from the temptation of viewing ministry or using ministry even as a means of uh, shameful gain? 
Well, for one thing, um, obviously I'm, I'm very accountable to the elders of our church. They're the ones who set my salary. They are the ones who determine the, uh, um, you know, the compensation package and, and whatever benefits may be there. Um, we our elders, our lay elders, in other words, the uh, non-staff elders are the ones who set the salary for all the rest of our of our staff, all of our pastors, all of our administrative team. So I think we need to be very above board in that regard, and that's what I've attempt I've done all my life. That's what we do here at Bridgeway. Um, I also, honestly, I just have to look at the patterns of individuals in the New Testament and see what what principles they lived by. And I have to ask myself the question constantly, how much of that do I really need? And have I noticed a tendency in my own heart to allow my enjoyment of what money can obtain for me to supplant my enjoyment of Jesus? You know, Jesus talks about not being able to serve two masters and our hearts not being captivated by greed. So I just have to constantly remind myself of that, constantly go back to the to the glories of the gospel to realize, you know, when I start thinking I'm entitled to m- more money, what I need to remember is I'm only entitled to one thing, and that's eternal damnation, and I'm not going to get that. <laughs> that's, you know, we talk about what I deserve. The only thing I deserve is death, and, and God in, in Jesus, through his grace and his mercy, has determined not to give that to me. The only one thing I deserve I'll never get. Everything else is a blessing. Everything else um, is just a, a monumental overflow of God's goodness and His abundant provision. So I just have to constantly bring myself back. That I have to remind myself of what Paul said. I think it's in First uh, Timothy, uh, primarily chapter six, um, about the dangers of wealth. You know, I go back into Proverbs, and I have to teach my own soul and preach to my own soul. Hey. Be careful. Um, it, it's deceptive. It can lure you into a false sense of security. You know, where what, what is your ultimate confidence in? Is it the comforts of physical of Western culture that money can purchase for you? Or is it the promise of the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life and the assurance that uh, everything God is for me and Jesus will come to pass? So got to constantly preach to my own soul to guard myself. Hmm, yeah. Yeah, that's so good and so relevant for for all of us, regardless of whether or not we're we're in vocational ministry or not. Uh, one of the things that's unique, maybe, about uh, vocational ministry uh, is that probably some number of people, whether it's maybe just the elders or a subset of the elders in, in some maybe congregational churches, it could be even the whole church is aware of how much you're making as a pastor, aware of the details of your compensation package. And has that ever been a challenge? Has that ever been hard, kind of having that 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 transparency when it comes to you, but, but most other Christians, again, going back to an earlier point, that's not the kind of information that they really share broadly. Yeah, that is a that's a very difficult question to answer. And my guess is that each church is going to have to answer that for themselves. I don't know that there's any particular rule. Now, you are right. You pointed out that in churches that are congregationally governed, not all of them, but probably most of them, uh, the congregation knows what the salary and the benefits and compensation package is for everybody who's on paid staff. Some of the others, maybe they don't. 
Uh, Bridgeway is elder governed. And so the elders are the ones who set, as I said earlier, um, the, the salary and the benefits for all paid staff. We've never had it come up at Bridgeway, amazingly. Um, the people see our budget. In fact, we just concluded our uh, annual covenant members meeting a couple of weeks ago, and we presented the budget, and they see um, uh, where the money is allocated, but we don't give specific details on who makes what or how much. And in my 12 years here at Bridgeway, we've never had a single person ask that question of us. <laughs> it's Now, I'm always prepared for it should it come up. Uh, and basically what I will say is if they say, hey, I, I want to know how much are you being paid, Sam? I think I should know that. And my response is always, you need to take that question to the Board of Elders, to the Compensation Committee. And they are the ones who determine whether or not it is a question that needs to be answered. Um, my guess is they would probably say, no, it doesn't. You know, there's always the possibility if people know what you're making, those who are, you know, lower middle class who are making substantially less might be resentful. Uh, those who are making substantially more might think you're being underpaid and it could just create tension and controversy. So we just basically say to the people, uh, if you believe that the Spirit of God has raised up these men to lead the church, as Acts 20, 28, 1 Peter 5 indicates that he has, if you trust their character, then we're simply asking you to trust their decision about what is a fair, equitable, and uh, generous compensation package for the pastoral team and the staff. So that's kind of the way we approach it. But again, um, if other churches think that uh, that all of the details need to be made public, I think that's fine as well. Now, make this very clear. All of our elders, that's both governing and non-governing, because some elders will rotate off the board after a certain number of years. They know exactly what, what I make and what all the other pastors make. Um, there are some churches, actually, that have been of late in the news that have created these special little uh, smaller subcommittees, if you will, of elders, like two or three, who are really, really close to the senior pastor, and they are the ones who set his salary. I think that's dangerous in the same way, and I, and I don't mind going on record with this, this idea of an external board of Christian leaders who are not even part of the church, who get, are given the authority to set the salary of the senior pastor, I think is is just a disaster ready to happen. Hmm. Why is that? Well, I have some friends, for example, who um, um, who are in churches where they their own board of elders don't even know what they make. They set up this external board, and it's usually very close friends from very large churches in which the pastors are paid humongous salaries. And so they go out and they get five or six of these guys and they say, hey, we, I want you to be my external accountability board and, and you're going to have the authority to set my salary. Well, that's just, in my opinion, a manipulative way of probably being paid more than you really should be. Uh, I hear stories of this all the time. You know, my, my pushback, uh, not, that's my first pushback. Secondly, how do those men know 
what's going on in your local church. They don't understand the demographics of the people. They don't know the giving patterns. They don't know how well you are fulfilling your responsibilities as a pastor. They don't know whether you're diligent or lazy, whether you're exploiting the people or sacrificing for them. The internal board of elders are the ones who have been given the responsibility to make those decisions and somehow exporting that to a small group of cronies or good close friends of yours, and you happen to know how much they make, and that's why you've got them on that board so that they will likely say, yeah, that's how much you should make. I just think that's disingenuous. I think it's dangerous. I think that your own board of elders should be the ones who make that determination. And again, whether or not they make that public or not has to rest with them. I don't think there's any biblical rule. I think they have to decide for themselves what is best for their local church. Yeah. And what what advice would you offer to the pastor listening who uh, maybe has felt for a long time that he's not getting paid enough, that he doesn't, he's not able to support his family. He's not able to save for retirement, uh, that he's just, he, he's not being paid enough, but it can be so hard to to think about, to contemplate, maybe he's actually tried to go to his elders or the compensation committee and, and express that and been rejected or been uh, received a lot of pushback. But what, what advice would you give along those lines? Well, again, some of my answer comes down to personal preference and principle. Um, f- let me just say, first of all, I do think that in general, pastors are paid too little. There's this, there's this idea, I don't know where it came from, that circulates in our society that ministers of the gospel ought to struggle financially. Maybe it's because they need to be tested in their faith. They need to, quote unquote, trust God. Well, of course they should trust God, but no more nor less so than every other Christian. They're not in a unique category in that regard. There's nothing in scripture that says that. We know Paul very clearly says that the, the, the laborer is worthy of his hire, um, and so this idea that, that pastors are supposed to be paid less uh, than others in the society, I, I don't buy into that. Um, at the same time, I don't think that a pastor of a megachurch is necessarily due a higher salary than a pastor of a church of only 150 or 200 people. I think he should be paid according to what um, to his job performance, how he dis- discharges his ministry, and what the church can afford to give. Now, the, the other question, the kind of more specifically that you asked, I, 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 I'm kind of hesitating here. Forgive my unawing uh, here, but um, I'm always hesitant to, to respond to this question because I do speak out of personal experience. My father is now with the Lord, um, and my mentor in the faith, a man by the name of S. Lewis Johnson, both of them counseled me and modeled for me this approach that you don't need to go ask for a raise. You need to go ask God that he would move the hearts of those who are responsible for your financial package and be content with what they decide. And I'm, um, I'm getting ready to turn 69 years old. I've been in ministry 46 years, and I've never asked for a salary increase. Now, I want everybody to listen to me carefully. I'm not saying that you're wrong if you do. (laughs) Please don't misunderstand me. There's no rule for this. There's nothing in the Bible that says thou shalt or shalt not, you know, go to the elders and ask for an increase. Some of you pastors who are listening to this probably need to do that. 
and you've probably been too scared because you're afraid they're going to conclude that you're just in ministry for the money and you're just wanting to spend it on, uh, you know, uh, a second or third car or second or third vacation home. And so you're reluctant and um, you need to be able to have enough money to live on and to provide for your family and to even prepare to pay for your children's education beyond high school and to have a, a retirement in place. You need to be able to save. Um, so if you're not receiving that and it's very clear uh, that that what you're receiving is below, and you know, studies have been done. You can go online. You can see what given the demographics of a particular area of the country, the size of the church, educational background, all these sorts of factors, you can find out what most are making. And if you're making significantly below that, uh, I don't think there's anything wrong if you choose to go and request an increase. I'm just saying that I've never done it, and God has been very faithful to provide for me. I, I was, oh, probably a year ago, I sat down over a long lunch with a pastor in my community who was really hurting financially. He'd been at that. He started the church. He founded it. He'd been there for seven years and he'd had one salary increase and he was barely able to get by. And he was scared to death of saying anything to his elders about it. And I said, you don't need to be afraid. In fact, if it would help, I, you know, I will even communicate with them myself just as an external counsel in that regard. But, um, you know, I think each individual has to make up his mind. You, you have to go to the Lord and ask what am I comfortable in doing? Um, and, and again, I don't think there's any clear, empirically verifiable rule or verse of Scripture that I can give you that tells you whether you should or should not seek a salary increase. Uh, a lot of it just comes down to how we were raised and who's influenced us, influenced us the most and why. So I have my own principles that guide me. I'm, I'm not imposing that on anybody else. Um, and so I, I don't want anybody to think that I'm laying down a rule that uh, is binding on every, uh, every minister of the gospel. That's certainly not the case. Well, Sam, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today and, and share some of these biblical principles about generosity and uh, supporting our churches and our pastors and also just the wisdom aimed at pastors in particular when it comes to navigating some of these tricky, these tricky topics. Um, but we appreciate you taking the time. Well, it's my privilege, and I hope it was helpful, and thanks very much for asking me to participate. That was Sam Storms on what the Bible teaches about tithing. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Tough Topics, Biblical Answers to 25 Challenging Questions, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.